The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Appreciate you all being here this morning. Those of you who are watching us through live stream, appreciate you joining us this morning. If you were to say, what is, what was the, what is the worst church in the New Testament? Which one would it be? Corinth. Not a good church? I've seen a lot of churches named that. The first church of Corinth, I thought, how dumb are you that you put that as your church name? Okay? This must be one messed up local church, you know? <laughs> Let me ask you this. That's right. They were still saints by calling. What is the best church in the New Testament? Come on, y'all got to... Thank you. <laughs> the Thessalonians. I mean, come on, that's what we're studying. You know, we've been talking about that. You know, we're, we're looking now. We, we went through 1 Thessalonians. We're in 2 Thessalonians. And this letter was written just a few months after 1 Thessalonians. This church had only been in existence for like 12 to 18 months, but they're being held up by Paul as an example to all the churches. I mean, that's pretty amazing. It's a very young church, but a very mature church. Now, after his salutation that we looked at last week, verses 1 and 2, Paul's first sentence goes from verse 3 through verse 10, and it's one long, complicated sentence in the Greek. We're going to break it down in sections and look at it today. Our text for today is going to be verses 3 and 4. Paul says, We ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly, and love for every one of love for every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So Paul begins this letter with thanksgiving for this church. That's the same way he began the first book with thanksgiving to the church. And he says, he starts out with we here, and this is referring to Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Now, I don't think Silas and Timothy are helping him write this letter. I just think they're there with him. So he's joining the team together. We, you know, our team here, we are saying this about you. Now, the Greek text begins with the emphatic we ourselves, which appears to introduce a contrast, but it's kind of like a contrast to what? What is he... What is he contrasting? He says, we ourselves, all, we ought always ourselves to give thanks to God for you. Now, the Thessalonians may have had a, a rather low view of themselves because of all the persecution that they were going through. And so maybe it said Paul contrast his praise for them with their maybe shame because of what all they're going through. So Paul says, we ourselves, Paul, Silas, Timothy, we give thanks to God for you. And by thanking God for their growth in faith and love, rather than congratulating the Thessalonians for their progress, Paul's acknowledging that these qualities are coming from God. And while we are responsible to grow in faith, we're responsible to grow in love, we can only do this as we depend on the indwelling Spirit's power. We can't crank this out in our flesh. We have to learn to depend on Christ. We have to learn to abide in Christ if we're going to live the life we've been called to live. He says we ought 
always to give thanks to God. Now, ought here is the Greek word aphelo, and it means we're under obligation. We're under obligation to thank God because clearly He's behind your growth. And then he adds, as is right. Because he had heard that the Thessalonians were probably protesting his earlier praise of them from the first letter. So he says, this is right. Right here is the Greek word axios, and it means it's worthy, it's fit, it's keeping what deserves to be done. So Paul is encouraging them by saying that their evident growth in faith and love shows that God is truly at work in their hearts. And a spirit of thanksgiving really characterizes the entire letter. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 13. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief of the truth. Now, why does Paul give God thanks rather than commending the Thessalonians for their wise choice to believe in him? It's because God chose you, okay? God chose, that's why they're Christians. God chose them to be part of his family. Now, as believers, I think we all have a duty to be grateful for the daily grace and love that God lavishes on us. Too often, we're not. But the more we understand what redemption really means, I think the more we will lift our voices in heartfelt praise to our Savior. Paul is thanking God for them. He says, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Now, in his earlier epistle to the Thessalonians, Paul prayed for their growth in faith. In 1 Thessalonians 3.10, he says, we pray. Most earnestly, night and day, that we may see your, you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And as I want to be there, I want to help build up your faith, I want to encourage your faith. He also prayed that they would increase in love. In 3.12 he says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So, in 1 Thessalonians he's praying for their faith and love, and now he is rejoicing that Yahweh had, in fact, answered their prayers. You know, Paul had invested times of prayer for these believers, and now he's seeing answers to these prayers. You know, we'll never know the joy of answered prayer unless we're praying. I know that's kind of self-evident, right? But, you know, it's almost like you got to say it. We need to be praying people, and then when things, when God does answer those prayers, we get pretty excited about it sometimes, all right? Prayer is something we all should be involved in. You know, Paul, we, I think it was last week we talked about, Paul says, you know, follow my example. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, Paul was a man of prayer. He didn't just set this church up and leave it. He continually prayed for the believers. Notice what Paul says to the believers in Colossae, he says, in 4.2, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, continue steadfastly is from the Greek word proskertereo, which calls attention to something that's regular, something that's loved, something that's prioritized. The word is used of a ruler's devotion to his task. That is, he's busying himself with the priorities of his office. So proskertereo implies that 
We're busily engaged in something, persisting in it with regularity. You know, I think too often believers don't have a habit of prayer because we haven't got the answers we wanted in the past. I prayed, God didn't do anything, didn't help, didn't work, so I'm not doing it. Well, I think we're thinking about prayer wrong if that's our attitude. Because I think it would help if we realized and we saw prayer as a declaration of our dependence upon God. So every time we pray, we're saying, God, I need you. If we thank God, we're thanking Him because, God, you provided this. So we're recognizing God. We're recognizing our dependence. We ask for God's forgiveness because we know we're dependent on Him to be forgiven. We thank Him in prayer because we know that whatever we have comes from His hand. We petition Him because only He can give us what we need. We know the Scripture clearly teaches God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And prayer is humility in action. Because it's saying, I can't do this. I need you. So I come to you acknowledging my need. So let me ask you this morning, believer, does your prayer life declare that you are dependent upon God for everything? And in that same vein, when we don't pray, we are declaring our independence. In other words, I, don't, I got this, God. Watch. That's a dangerous place to be. Paul is thankful for them. He's thankful for what God has done, and he's invested in their lives in prayer. He's thankful, he says, because your faith is growing abundantly. Now, this metaphor is from agriculture and expresses vigorous plant growth. Growing abundantly is the Greek verb huperoxeno. And it's an unusual verb. It's only used here in the Greek Bible. And it gives the thought of vigorous growth. So their faith had not only grown, but it had flourished since he wrote that first letter. And then he says, And love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Increasing here is pleonazo, and it means to make more, to increase, by extension, to superabound. The word is used metaphorically to invoke images of swelling floodwaters. So literally, the Greek text here has, the love of each one of you, all for one another, abounds. Increasing one love for one another, it just flows out of their growing faith in the Lord. Because they had faith, because their faith had grown, their love had also grown, because we know that the Lord commanded us as his children, to love one another. In John 13, 34 and 35, the Lord's talking to his disciples, and he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're Christians. Is that what it says? Some people make it say that because they think it's synonymous. No, he's talking to believers and he says, this is how people are going to know you're my disciples, you're my follower, if you love one another. Now, first thing I want you to notice here, this is not a suggestion. <laughs> a new suggestion I give you. No, it's a new commandment, okay? You can't live out the Christian life without a commitment to loving one another. You can't do that, all right? Now, some Christians place a lot of emphasis on prophecy, 
Some place emphasis on spiritual gifts, some maybe on social issues. But the core curriculum for the Christian life is to love one another. And it doesn't matter how much we know, it doesn't matter how much we do, if we cannot pass this test, Paul says we're nothing. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians, the love chapter, okay? He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, the Greek text at the end of verse 2 does not say that he is nobody. That would be strong. But the Greek text says he is nothing. He's nothing. Okay? You can write down three zeros and then add them up, and what do you get? Zero. Okay? You get zero. Life, what Paul is saying here, life minus love equals Zero. The loveless person produces nothing, is nothing, and gains nothing. If we're going to be faithful Christians, we can't pick and choose who we're going to love, and we can't let love become a secondary issue. Love is it's more than just an option in the Christian life. It's entry-level requirement to discipleship. We're called to do this. Now, Yeshua said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now, think about that for a minute. Love is really the most significant Christian attribute that we can offer the world. We need to love each other. And you know what? I think this even goes for online communication. Chat rooms. Because that gets... You don't usually see it in chat rooms, okay? It's like we're, you know, when you're on a computer, you say some of the, my wife was reading me some comments from a pastor had got some disease and he was in a coma and then on a respirator and he's just a big mess. And the comments in the comments section were just sickening by people who claim to be Christians. It's just, it's just sad because everybody can read those comments. We are called to love one another. And when I say that, I'm not quoting a tweed-wearing, pipe-smoking liberal theologian. I'm quoting Yeshua, okay? He said, they'll know we're His disciples by our love. To not be a loving person is not a small character flaw. It's to break the greatest commandment. It's not to love God. So we need to understand that love is a requirement. Now notice here how we are to love one another. He says, just as I have loved you. That bar can't get set any higher, people. Okay? The sacrificial work of Yeshua on the cross of Calvary is the new standard for the Christian's love for fellow believers. Now, they had seen His love, His disciples for them, during His entire earthly ministry, but they're only going to understand its depth through the cross. Now, we all know we're to love one another, but are we aware that we're called to love others in the same way that Christ loved us? Look at Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. He says, Therefore be imitators of God. Now we talk about this, we quote this verse often. We are called, as believers, to imitate our Father. Alright? 
He says, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering sacrifice to God. So according to this text, how do we imitate God? Walk in love. Our Heavenly Father is a God of love, and His children are called to walk in love as our Heavenly Father does. Now when Paul tells us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us, he's not telling us we have to sacrifice each other to secure someone's pardon. We're not called to do that. We can't do that. So how do we do this? We do it by making sacrifices for other people. You know, I think the greatest hindrance to love is selfishness. That's the major impediment to love. So in order to grow in love, you need to think about how the other person, you have to think about their needs ahead of your own. You need to lay aside your rights and you need to sacrifice your time and effort for that other person. Paul put it this way in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That would cut out a lot of things. Right? But in humility, he says, count others more significant than yourselves. You know, I think every one of us do this naturally to an extent. Because there's certain people that we kind of esteem. We think, you know, we hold them up. And so we think, well, they're actually better than me. But most of the people are below the, that line. All right, most of the people, they're not worthy of that. But this is what it's saying. It says, count others, all others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. I remember we're sitting on my back deck and my wife was talking to the neighbor and she was complaining about something. My wife says, well, we're to count others more significant than ourselves. And the neighbor says, I don't believe that doctrine. I'm like, doctrine? That's just the verse in the Bible, okay? It, what do you mean you don't believe it? You know, you're going to start tearing stuff out. It's funny how we pick and choose what we want to believe, what we want to accept. Believers, faith and love are the essence and the sum of the Christian life. And both faith and love were growing like well-fertilized plants beyond what would have been normally expected in this church. I mean, this is an exceptional church. This is what Paul focuses on in verse 3, and it's cause for rejoicing. And then he moves into verse 4, he says, Therefore, we ourselves, we boast about you. Okay? We ourselves, again, this is a very emphatic expression. Much more emphatic than would have been expected in this connection. But I think it implies, I think the contrast here is that it could have been and others had spoken of the faith, of the love and endurance of these believers in the midst of their affliction, and they, they just haven't thought that well of themselves, or other people have talked about them also. But their perseverance and their faith were such that the missionary team was just constrained to boast about them to the other churches. So they're visiting the church, and they're saying, hey, have you heard of the Thessalonians? These people are amazing. <laughs> their, their faith is just growing like crazy. They're young Christians. They're loving one another. It's amazing. And he says, we boast about you in the churches of God. The Greek here, kauhaomai, and it means to boast, to vaunt, to glory, to rejoice. This verb appears only here in the New Testament. Now remember what he said in the previous verse. We give thanks to God for you. 
So when Paul says he's boasting about you, what God's doing in their life, that's what he's boasting. We're boasting about what God is doing in your life. Because it's God who's doing this. If it was their faith and love, thriving in the midst of persecutions and tribulations, that Paul made the boast, boasting about their love to other people, to other churches. Now, he said, for your steadfastness in faith. Steadfastness here is the Greek word, Hupomone. And hupomone means endurance. It comes from the noun hupo, which means under, and mene, which means to abide. So remain under, abide under. It speaks of remaining under trial without giving in. It talks about the ability to endure or remain or be steadfast regardless of the intensity and the length of the persecution that's coming against you. Hupomone is used in relation to the various kinds of trials that we all face in life. You know, it's talks of, you could be referring to sickness or pain or financial loss or death of loved ones. It could be warfare, physical and spiritual weakness. These things cause Christians to turn away from the Lord at times. And that's, I think, the main reason for that is bad theology. All right, this health wealth gospel is taught so much throughout the church that we all really think God owes us some things, and if we don't get them, we get mad at them. But there's always a temptation to give up when things get really difficult. And Hupomoni has the idea of remaining under pressure no matter how bad it gets, no matter how bad you want to quit. It's the fortitude that not only survives trouble, but actually grows stronger in it. And endurance comes from hope of the future. So you have a hope for the future so you can hang on, you can endure. Look what Paul said in Romans 8.25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with hupomone, endurance. Now, so endurance comes from hope. Where does hope come from? Well, according to Romans 15.4, Paul says, For whatever has been written... In former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. So the instruction which Scripture imparts is directed to endurance and comfort. The word endurance here, hupomone again. We gain endurance from the Scripture as we read it, as we spend time in it, and that gives us hope. I think it would be safe to say that their endurance was rooted in the hope of the coming of the Lord Yeshua. That was where their hope was. Paul talked about it in every letter in the first book, and he's going to talk about it much in this second book. But that was where their hope, their hope was in the return of the Lord. Now, he talks about your steadfastness and faith. Faith here is used in the sense of faithfulness. In other words, they remain faithful to the Lord in the midst of their persecutions. And he says, all your persecutions and afflictions which you are enduring... All right, persecutions here is diagmas, which is used primarily of religious persecution and describes the hostile actions of others. So they're suffering at the hands of their contemporaries, and I think this suffering was motivated by Satan because they were in, in the midst of a spiritual battle. And so their, the battle is intense, and they are being persecuted. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.14. He says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Yeshua that are in Judea. For you suffered 
the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So what Paul is doing here, he's comparing their suffering that they're having, they're going through at Thessalonica, the persecutions, he's comparing them to the churches in Judea. Now, we know from Acts what was going on in Judea and the persecutions that they experienced. I mean, they were killing people there. Stephen was martyred. James, the son of Zebedee, was martyred. The persecution against the Thessalonian church began when Paul was there. That's why they had to leave early. After just a few weeks, they were run out of the city. And the persecution continued after they left. So what he is saying here is these brand, this brand new church, And Thessalonica was dealing with persecution, the same as this older mature church, because they were abiding in Christ. They were mature. They were walking in obedience to the Spirit of God and just demonstrating their Christian life by the way they live. Now, he says that their persecution is from their own countrymen. And many see this as referring to the Gentiles, but the word countrymen here, sumphuletes, uh, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament, and it defines, it strong defines this as co-tribesmen, that is, native of the same country. This term doesn't define people racially, but embraces all who live within a locality. So that's the idea. It's, it's a people that are living, your countrymen, they're suffering from their countrymen, which were the Jews, you're suffering from your countrymen. And both these words here, Judea and Jews, are from the Greek, So they're imitating the suffering that the churches of Judea suffered from the Judeans. They're suffering from their own countrymen, just like they were. We might understand that this is not only Gentiles, but it's also Jews who continue to oppress the church. He says, in all your persecutions, now the plural here for persecutions is strengthened by the adjective all, most likely indicates that these outbreaks of hostility just happened at various times and in various ways. The author author also, Paul, describes their suffering as afflictions. This is the Greek flipsis, and it means pressure, stress, tribulation. Now, diagmas is a special term for external persecutions inflicted by enemies of the gospel. It's more of a religious, and flipsis is more general. It could... Taken tribulation of any kind, but in these letters they're kind of both synonymous because this is the, it just encompasses all their suffering. Everything they're dealing with, everything they're going through is covered here. Now, we have to ask why were the Thessalonians suffering? What were, what were they dealing with? What exactly is going on? Well, the precise form of their persecutions, what the form took, we don't really know, and we're not really sure why they were being persecuted. We can presume, I guess, that they were being accused by both Jew and Gentile because they're practicing a religion that was incompatible with the patriotic and religious loyalty to the Roman Empire and its cult. They're not fitting in there, so they're being persecuted. And I would think some of them are actually being put to death. And that's maybe why in the first letter they're saying, what about about the people that have already died? What happens to them when the Lord returns? So that's why they're having these questions. So this church was a church that was experiencing a lot of persecution. And it's interesting as you study church history, persecution never hurt the church. You know, we hear about the persecuted church here every Sunday. 
And it's horrible what these people are going through. And we can't hardly imagine what they're going through. But it, persecution never hurt the church. The church always thrived in persecution. Now that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? I mean, if you were coming here this morning and there was a threat of maybe you lost your life because you were here worshiping, do you think you'd come? The church in China has been severely persecuted as a result of communism, and yet during the, this period of great tribulation, the church has grown and expanded tremendously. I mean, some estimate that there are 100 million believers in the home church in China being persecuted. Their lives are on the line when they do it. You know, you can understand, I guess, the worship would be pretty pure if <clears throat> only the people showed up were willing to die. You know, take care of a lot of the carnal Christians would just maybe not show up that day or not be around. But the early church not only grew, they had a different understanding of persecution than we do. I mean, if we're persecuted, we cry like a bunch of whiny babies. You know, we fall apart. We can't handle it. You know, this is America. We're not supposed to be persecuted for anything. You know, we're Americans. <clears throat> But the New Testament believed that persecution was a gift from God. And Paul taught that. Philippians 1.29. He said, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Granted here is harizomai, which comes from Heros, which is grace. So, Harizomai is grace. The noun form is used of spiritual gifts. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words says, Harizomai primarily denotes favor or kindness shown. To give freely, to bestow graciously. So, Paul is saying suffering is a gift of God's grace. He says it's been granted not only to believe, but also to suffer. So he compares suffering with salvation. And he says both are grace gifts. We know salvation is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that. But so is suffering. And he doesn't say suffering is a punishment. It's something that happened to you by chance. God gives suffering as graciously and lovingly as He gives you the faith to believe in His Son. Does that make sense to you? It doesn't to me. I'm like, what? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, you know. It's hard to see suffering as a grace gift, but that's what the Bible says. They're grace gifts from God. And I think, believers, what we have to understand, and what's very difficult for us in this country is that whenever Christians live as they ought to live in this world, when they live righteous, holy lives, when they live aggressively seeking to spread the gospel of the Lord Yeshua the Christ, when they live as disciples seeking to make disciples, when we stand for righteousness, there's going to be persecution. Now, in our day and age, if you just say, we only believe in two genders, you're going to be persecuted. Okay? They're going to try to shut you down. They're going to try to get rid of you, you know, because that's, that's a, just a crazy idea, you know, that Christians believe in. 
But these are things that we have to stand up for. You know, our world has gone crazy. Notice Paul's promise to those who are suffering. In the end of Romans here, Romans 8, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? So he's talking about all these terrible things that believers go through. He says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Yeshua our Lord. Now persecution here is our word diagmas. So Paul is telling the believers here in Rome that nothing, they're going to go through a lot of stuff, okay? Persecution to the point of death. Nothing will separate them from Yahweh's love. Nothing. People, this is eternal security. All right, A believer is secure in Christ. Aggressive opposition would never separate them from the love of God, regardless of the intensity or the outcome. That's comforting. But here's what we have to understand about this text. This is talking about our position in Christ. This is not talking about our practice. So what I'm trying to say here is persecution will never change our position. But it could change our practice. And by that I mean people can turn away from the Lord because of it. And this is why the writer of Hebrews warns believers, and he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, one writer commenting on this says, This is not a reference to Christians. He refers to racial brothers, unbelieving Jews. Okay, so how is an unbelieving Jew going to fall away? From Christ. They don't believe in Christ. How are they going to fall away? And contextually, this is really ridiculous because in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. He's talking to Christians. You know, it's sad we take the warning verses out of the Bible and just, well, that doesn't apply to us. No, it does apply. The author is writing to believers and he's telling them to be constantly watching out lest there be found in them an evil heart of unbelief. Turning away from the Lord. Persevering in the faith in the midst of difficult trials, believers, is not automatic. You say, well, Romans said well, nothing will separate. Nothing will. Your position is solid in Christ. But it doesn't mean you're going to stay faithful and stay on track. It's not automatic. We all have the potential to doubt God. The capacity for unbelief. Have you ever doubted God? Be honest. I mean, we're capable of doubting. And particularly under pressure that, you know, if it gets severe enough, it just like poison seeps into our soul and we become hard in our hearts. We're like, why would God do this to us? Because we have this wrong view of God, so if anything bad happens to us, we, we think God's just, that's, not, that's wrong, God. You just can't do that. 
So when you're facing a trial, a severe trial, you need to take care. Because you can either have an evil, unbelieving heart turning away from the living God, or you can turn towards Him and grow vigorously as you trust Him and see His faithfulness in the promises. Now, contrary to lordship theology, the writer of Hebrews knew that because of persecutions, because of temptations, apostasy was a real possibility for the believer. Turning away from God. Our Lord taught the same idea in the parable of the soils. He described the way some fall away when tribulation or persecution comes because of the word. Look at Mark 4, 2 through 9. The Lord gives this parable. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seed fell along the path. The birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, this parable gives us insight, I think, into people's response to the gospel. And in the end, it's really an encouraging text because the parable of the soils tells us there's going to be fruit. There's going to be a harvest. Now, the parable of the soils comes first in all the synoptic gospels. It's the first parable that he gives. And Yeshua's first century audience was all too familiar with the problems attendant on growing food in their day. All right, they had primitive tools that made little impression on some of the hard, stony ground. The seed that they had was limited and could be wasted as they watched the birds come and take it away before it ever rooted. If the grain grew too quickly, uh, the weeds would just seem to choke it out. There's, these are everyday experiences for the life of the people he is talking to. They're part of their struggle to just try to survive. But the question was, did they realize that they were illustrative of what could hinder them from the all-important message that he was giving? See, the sower in this parable is Yeshua. Matthew tells us that in Matthew 13, 37. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Now, we know Yeshua is constantly sowing the message of the kingdom. But I don't think we have to limit it here just to Yeshua. I think this is something that all believers can be involved in doing. The sower can be any Christian that's proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And the word being sown is the gospel message. Luke 8.11 says this, Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So the par- this parable is about preaching the gospel. It shows us how people will respond to the gospel message. And I think it's saying that we're all responsible to sow the seed of the Word of God. All right? All believers. If you understand the gospel, how, why would you not want to share it? And why would you not get exciting sharing it? I remember questioning myself because you're sharing the gospel with somebody and they're just excited and they're open and they're like, oh, I believe that. 
And I get so excited and I stop and think, you know, I'm not getting a commission for this. Why do I get so excited? But it's just, it is exciting because you're bringing somebody into the kingdom of God and it's just, you know it's drastic change of their life. And if you really understand the gospel, I think you're just naturally going to want to share it. We got four kinds of soil in this parable. The first one is just the hard soil. Verse 15, he says, and these are the ones along the path. The path, you know, is hard soil. You're constantly walking on it, so it's tramped down. It's packed hard. Nothing grows there. The word is sown. And when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in. So this kind of soil represents those who are hardened. Now, we could just simply say, these are the people who have not been called. All right? There's those who Yahweh has not given a new heart. They're dead in their sin. They cannot respond to the gospel. Okay? That's a lie of our generation. The theology today is just up to you to trust Christ, you know, because He's waiting for you. He's begging you. He's standing there knocking at your heart's door, wishing you would open it. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person, that's the person without the Spirit of God. All right, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For their folly to him, he, he doesn't accept them, their foolishness, and then he goes on to say, he's not able to understand them. Because they're spiritually discerned. He can't comprehend the things of God until God gives him life. Now, we know that Satan is no longer in the picture. But men are still dead in their sin and they have no ability to respond to the gospel. Have you ever met people like this? You attempt to share the gospel with them and it's like, I was working, I had a job in a foundry and someone came up to me and handed me a gospel track. I stopped working, it was a cartoon. And I read it, it was Big Daddy from Chick Publications and I got convicted and I went to the man I said, you know, what How, What do I do? What You know, <laughs> And he told me, you just got to trust the Lord. You know, you got to believe in God. And so I did. And so that next week, we had about 10 guys that hung out in high school. And we had a keg party every week. And so this time it was at my house. So I went to the bookstore and I bought tons of these tracks. And I thought, this is going to be good. And so we're at the, at the kegger and I'm handing out these pamphlets to everybody. And I'm just excited because I'm like, everybody's going to get saved. And they just start throwing them down. Put, I'm like, did you read it? Yeah. Nobody was interested. I was devastated. I thought, why do they not care? There's just so many people you share with, and you're so excited. I'm like, do you understand what I'm telling you? This is the gospel. They could care less. And Yeshua warned us that sharing the gospel is going to get this response. There's people who are going to respond this way. Yes, this parable teaches us how people will respond to the gospel. Here's what I want you to understand. These soils can change. Okay? These soils can change. I've been in church all my life. Didn't ever want to be there, but I was there because my parents made me go. And I'd be like, is he done yet? You know? And just, so I never, I never got anything out of it. Okay? But all of a sudden, someone hands me a track and boom, I come to life because God gave me life. Now it makes sense to me. So these soils can change. Every one of us at one time was a hard soil. 
So we're to continue to cast the seed knowing that the result is up to God. That is, that is so freeing, people. You know, when we first moved here, we were in a church that, you know, the, if you don't share the gospel with somebody and they die and go to hell, their blood is on your hands. That's a terrible, terrible thing, you know. And I just felt like, boy, anybody I came in contact with, I had to, I'd be at a toll booth and I'd be trying to share the gospel. To get going, buddy, there's cars behind you, you know. Because, you know, I mean, I don't want their blood on my hands. You know, that's sad. Now, the results, people, they're up to God. Now, most people see these next two soils as non-believers also. So they see only one out of the four pertaining to those who would believe the gospel. Now, it shouldn't surprise you when I say that's not how I see it, okay? I see the last three soils as believers. So who's right? Well, you study this out for yourself. You be a Berean and dig into this and see what you think. But let's look at the rocky soil, all right? And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. So he receives it. He receives it with joy. Receive here is the present tense and has the idea. It keeps on receiving it. The word joy here is hara from grace. It's a response to what God has given them. They're just... They receive this. They're excited about it. This person has believed the gospel. All right? Now, how do I know that? Because Luke tells me that. All right? In Luke 8, 12 through 13, Luke says, The one along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. Now, please understand this. The, the seed is taken away, it's removed from them, so they don't believe, because if they believe, they'll be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But they have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. So, we have some that don't believe, and because they don't believe, they're not saved. And we have some who believe, which would imply that what? They're saved. John Calvin, who I think is one of the greatest reformers, had lost his mind on this text because he's based on this text in Luke, he developed a doctrine called temporary faith. And I, I couldn't talk to him because he hadn't been around lately, but if I could, I'd say, John, if you have temporary faith, do you get temporary eternal life? So then that wouldn't really be eternal life, it'd be temporary life. I don't know where the Bible talks about getting temporary life. The Bible's really clear when you believe. Now, we have been so trained because of wrong theology to think, well, the Bible says they believe, but they really didn't believe. That's people. The Bible says they believe. Guess what? They believe. God had some inside knowledge to this stuff when he wrote this, okay? They believe. And the text never says they said they believed. They acted like they believed. They pretended like they believed. It doesn't say any of that. They believed. So these people believed. But for a while. Well, what happened? They were persecuted. And here's what we have to understand. You cannot believe the gospel unless God gives you life first. See, the church has it backwards. If you believe, God will give you eternal life. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, because you're dead. 
All right? Dead men don't believe anything. Dead men don't do anything. Dead men don't respond to anything. You have to have life first, and then you can respond. Let me show you 1 John 5.1. Everyone who believes, not most people, but everyone, that Yeshua is the Christ has been, past tense, has been born of God. In other words, the reason they believe is because they've been born of God. They have life. And when God brings you to life, your response is faith. And the response to faith is salvation. All right? All right, let's move on to verse 17. And they have no root in themselves, but they endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they immediately fall away. All right, again, we have our same words. Tribulation is flipsis. Persecution is diagmas. Same words as in our text in Thessalonians. The persecution is coming because of the word. Because they're believing, they're positioned, they're believers. And because of it, they fall apart. Both categories here, tribulation and persecution, can be opportunities for the application of doctrine, trusting in God, growing, or falling away. And that's what he says here. They immediately they fall away. Now, according to Romans 8, they don't fall away from Christ in the sense of eternal security. They're secure, but then in their practice, they walk away. And the word fall away here is skandalizo in the Greek. In biblical Greek and literature influenced by it, that's the only place you'll find this word. But the verb is always used metaphorically with the meaning to ensnare into sin, to take offense at, to give offense to, to anger. Thus they are ensnared into sin because the word is a stumbling block to them. They, they just fall away because of this. Now, you know, most people say, well, a believer can't do that. Well, not according to Paul. In 1 Corinthians 8, he says this, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, scandalizo, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble, scandalizo, fall away. So a believer can fall away from following the Lord. Now in the rocky soil, the word of the kingdom is immediately received with joy. But because the message doesn't become firmly rooted in the believer's heart, when tribulation, when persecution comes, as a consequence of believing that message, they just are overpowered by it and they give up. They turn away. I'm not doing this. I don't like this persecution. I don't want to, I don't want to hear it. Because the message is received with joy, but it's not developed. They don't have roots in themselves. The time of trouble is just too much for them to bear. They can't handle it. So they fall away. People, this is one reason that Christian fellowship and accountability is so important. When you're alone, it makes it really hard. And the writer of Ecclesiastes knew that. He said a threefold cord is not easily broken. When you have accountability, you have someone to support you and encourage you, you can get down at times because of, you know, a persecution. But this message was received, but it wasn't developed. It wasn't developed. And therefore, because of the shallowness of their experience, and because they didn't have any depth of the Word of God, They had nothing to draw on in the day of trouble, and they just fell away. 
So although the message is received, it isn't developed. The believer doesn't run after the measure of the fullness of the gospel. They're not, they're not digging in the Word. They're not learning who God is. Maybe they don't understand that you know, persecution is a grace gift. So let me ask you, do you know any believers like this? You know any people that came to Christ, were excited about Christ, and then all of a sudden something happened and they're gone? I do. I know plenty of people like this. And, people, and a lot of people say, well, they never were really a Christian. Listen, I, I hung around with some of those people for a while. We fellowshiped, and I know they knew God. I mean, they had, you know, you just know when you're with someone in the present who just knows what it means to love God and be with God. But they had some circumstances in their life that just crushed them. And a lot of this has to do with theology proper, our knowledge of God. Saving faith is not the end, people. It's the beginning. Once we come into a relationship with Christ, we're to grow. We're to, it's a journey, and it's a long journey. All right, then we have the weedy soil. Others are the ones sown among thorns. They're those that hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Now the sole point here is the life of the recipient of the message of the gospel. That wasn't the only seed growing in their life. All right, There's other things developing alongside. And in this soil, the word germinates and it takes root, but it gets choked out by other interest. The cares of the world pull away from the things of God. You know, I think each of us has to be aware that within a very short time, we can find ourselves so taken up with what's temporal that we forget about those things which are eternal. Here's a believer who doesn't have his priorities straight. Instead of having a passionate desire for the Word, they're playing with a lot of other things. These are believers who, who never come to maturity. They don't apostatize. They don't turn away from God. They may even continue to go to church, but their growth is stunted and they're just... The Lord is just one of many things in their life that's important to them. They don't follow the words of Yeshua in Matthew 6 who said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. The kingdom is not first in their lives because they have other interests that draw them away. And I think one of our problems in America is that we're lured away by the deceitfulness of riches. You know any believers like this? They came to the Lord, they're excited about the Lord, but then they're just like, ah, whatever. Yeah, I believe that, but, you know, I got more important things to do. Well, finally, we have some good soil. But those who are sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Finally, there's the seed that falls on the good soil, and it's free from hindrances. I think this is indicative of the person who hears the gospel, understands it, and develops it. There, And listen, a lot of this has, when we're talking about soil, a lot of it, you got Christians in churches that don't teach the Bible at all. So they're just sitting there. They don't know any better. They never hear the Bible. They get three points in a poem every week, and they feel really good, and they get up and they go, Okay. But they're not learning. They're not growing. So they don't know any better. And they're never told they should read their Bibles. You know, and we talk about that a lot, but majority of Christians have never read this book. I mean, they read parts of it. You know, I got our daily bread, and it gives me one verse, and then some stupid comments about that verse that have nothing to do with it. 
And that's sad, people. We're to read our Bibles, okay? And that's why I press you constantly. Listen, every believer, Christianity 101, you should read through the Bible every year. Every year. Now, maybe I push it too much because I got some people guilty who call me and say, look, I start reading and I get interested in something. I start studying and digging. I'm not going to make it through in a year. And I'm like, that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. If, if your reading is causing you to dig, then that's fine, okay? Don't feel guilty about it. Just, you know, make it a two-year plan or whatever, but you're going to get through with more understanding. But people, we, you know, we could read through that Bible in a year if you spent 15 minutes a day. Is that too much? If you don't have 15 minutes a day for God, your life is a mess. Your priorities are way wrong, okay? To call yourself a Christian and not spend time in that book, something's wrong. But that's the thing with this believer. They're, they're in the Word of God. They're learning. They're growing. They understand theology proper. They know who God is. And listen, when you know God, you can trust God. When you don't, you can't. They bear fruit. Useful for the farmer who sowed it. That's pretty exciting. They're, the word accept here is from the Greek paradekomai. It means to accept near. The word is received or welcomed alongside you. In other words, they're welcoming the word. It's a companion to them. Now, in the ancient world, and even in the Near East today, you never let someone near to you along your side that you don't trust. The word comes alongside. It's trusted. It's something they spend time with. Now, every farmer knew that some seed is going to produce a harvest. That's why they just keep on sowing. All right? There are those who would hear the word, take it into their heart, and they'll produce fruit in abundance. Now, what is the fruit they're talking about here? The fruit is the result that the Spirit produces, and it's Christ-likeness. Fruit is not something that's attached to the branch or fastened from without. It is an organic product from the inner life. You know, too often attention is directed to outward services or outward actions that people are doing. Good fruit is a Christ-like life produced by the Spirit as we abide in Christ. And that's the only way this will happen. And this, this text in John 15 to me is so important because he, he's talking to his disciples here. He's talking to people who believe him. They've trusted him. And then he says to them, abide in me. So he's telling Christians, Christians, you need to abide in me. But no, remain. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we see here that we're called to abide in Christ. And as we abide in him, the fruit is produced through us. And it, again, it's a Christ-like life. And in spite of all the problems that he faced, the farmer could rest assured that he's going to get some kind of crop. And when he did, it would produce abundance. So in the end, people, this message is positive. A harvest is guaranteed. The seed will bear fruit. They'll be receptive hearers. I want you to remember, though, please, what I said earlier. These soils can change. Okay? I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. And you've seen it happen because we were all, all hard soil from birth, okay? And at some point, why did you believe it? Was it the first time you heard it? Maybe it was. But Yahweh had given you a heart of flesh. He'd taken out that heart of stone. And then you could trust Christ. Now, I've known rocky soil believers 
who because of persecution fell away and later came back to Christ. I know weedy soils that were just caught up in everything else. We had a kid in our youth department who made a profession of faith. He was always at everything, but he was just, you know, he could... He didn't really care about God. That was evident, but he did like the youth department. He liked being around. He was that way for 10 years, okay? Because we kept in touch in his adult life. And at one point in time, I don't know what happened, he exploded and he got serious about God. And he was reading his Bible and he was growing. And that's all he talked about then. Well, God's done this and the Lord's done that. And he just, I mean, and that was just rejoicing. Because I'm like, here's a weedy soil that man just took off. And now he's excited about the Lord. So these soils are not necessarily permanent conditions. But it all revolves around the Word of God. Okay? He's describing here for us different responses to the Gospel. But you need to be encouraged and remember that the greater the sowing, the greater the reaping. You know, you say, well, I haven't led anybody to the Lord. Well, are you trying? If you don't talk to people, it's kind of hard to do, right? And this is Paul's concern for this Thessalonians. They are doing well they are exceptional but he wants them to be the good soil that is going to continue to produce fruit and because of that after they're driven out of town he sends timothy back there he sends timothy to strengthen and encourage them and then after timothy comes back with news he sends a letter and then he get, timothy delivers that and then he sends him back with another letter because he wants to strengthen them he wants them to be solid in the word of god And the key here, people, the bottom line is you put down deep roots as you spend time in the Word of God. There's no substitute. There just isn't. The psalmist says, those who know your name will put their trust in you. The only way you'll know God's name, His character, is by spending time with Him in the Word of God and spending time in prayer. It's just a habit that we as believers should develop. And again... If you want to say you don't have time, show me your schedule. I'll find time. Okay? I promise you I'll find time. Okay? Because we all waste so much time. But 15 minutes a day can take you through the whole Bible. You'll come up, you'll be surprised what's in there, okay? <laughs> Things you never see. I always love it when someone's first time going through, they're like, wow, my eyes are never saw any, never knew any of this stuff. I know. Even You know, if you've been reading your Bible on the schedule right now, you're in Leviticus. Okay? Great reading, right? Leviticus? (laughs) Well, let me tell you, I was really encouraged last week. I read Leviticus 26. It's, It's like Deuteronomy 28, blessings and cursings, okay? And it's just like he's telling the Israelites, listen, if you obey me, you're going to have rain, you're going to have food. You're going to be blessed. Your enemies are not going to mess with you. It's just, and you're like, this is a utopia. But if you don't obey me, now, and you got to keep in your mind, these people came out of Egypt. They saw God do the 10 plagues against the gods of Egypt, wipe out Pharaoh's army, take care of them. And God says, okay, just obey me and you'll be great. And they turn away. I'm like, how dumb are you? Because look at the cursing. The, the cursing section is like three times the length of the blessing section. Here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to eat your own offspring if you don't obey me. That's what happened in AD 70, the fall of Jerusalem. They ate their own offspring. Okay? But it's like, you know, God lays all this before us. He says, look, I want to bless your life. Just follow me. But something in us that just wants to go a different way. 
and suffer the consequences. People, there's pain in sin. Bottom line. Fall on Christ is a blessing no matter what the circumstances you go through because you're going through it with your Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your word, Lord. I pray you'd give us the heart of Bereans, Father, that we would not accept things we hear, we would not reject things we hear, we would study things we hear to find if they're true, to find if they're right. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege we have today to have so many study aids at our disposal that we can dig as deep as we want. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. I pray that we'd be a fellowship that would encourage and support one another, Lord, especially in times of stress and persecution and trials, that we would come alongside and encourage in the faith. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for giving us this local fellowship here. Amen. Okay, questions? Comments. Uh, Doug said, Peter was an excellent example of a believer falling away in fear only to rebound by God's grace and become a rock of faith. He was. You know, the Lord said, you'll deny me, and he's not me. Not me. But he sure did, you know, and it's a sad thing. Anthony says, very, very, very excellent message. I can relate. Amen. Amen, Amen brother. Where is it? <laughs> Gary? Well, you mentioned um, how we expect everything to go right and Things don't we say God can't do that, you know, He can't do that. But when we fall away and we ignore Him, ignore what's doing, doing what's right, and fall into sin, and then He forgives us, we never say, We can't do that. We accept that we jump at that opportunity. You know, if you just look at Christians that have walked away and see the misery of their life, it should be enough to say, That's not the way to go. And you see people who are walking in fellowship with the Lord, and you see the joy and the blessing that God brings. God wants to bless His people. Shan Morgan says, Thank you, David. Love the sport coat. (laughs) (laughs) This coat was given to me by her husband, who died last year. A good friend of mine, just a fellow disciple, a fellow lover of God. Kathy and I got to go there and spend some time with him right before he died. And... um, yeah, he, he took me in his closet and said, hey, let's... And I said, yeah, I like that. He said, here. So fits me good. So I'm like, yeah, thanks, Steve. Um, kind of keeps me rem- <laughs> remembering him. Did you have a question? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, so you talked... This is the first time I've ever heard that uh, you can like walk away from Christ and still keep your salvation. Okay. Um, so essentially, you're saying if you believe at any point in your life that Jesus that Yeshua died for the sins of mankind, then regardless of how you choose to act later on in your life, it's not going to separate you from God. You won't be blooded out of the book of life. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. Now, people don't like that. So, well, then you're just giving people a license to sin. No. 
the exact opposite because I've just been t trying to tell you all that if you don't live the way you're supposed to, your life is going to be miserable. But yes, I believe that if a person believes, now how do we know if they believe? I don't know how to do that. If I have a question, I ask them. I will go over the gospel with somebody. Some, if they're not living a Christian life, I share the gospel. Oh, I believe that. You believe the gospel? Okay, then I say, you're living in sin and, and deal with that aspect of it, okay? But yes, see, salvation comes from God and it's upon believing. And once we believe the gospel, we are secure because we're brought into the family of God. We're given eternal life. That If it's eternal life, how long what do you think it'll last? You know, it's eternal. It can't, you can't be separated. And that's what we read in Romans. There's nothing that can separate us from God's love. But people don't like the fact, well, they can't go to heaven because they're not living right. Believe me, they're going to suffer here and now. I think there's temporal judgment for a believer who will not follow Christ. And I think one of the most powerful examples of this is Matthew 18, when the parable about forgiveness is, if you don't forgive your brothers, he says, you're going to be handed over to the torturers. That's what the literal Greek says. The torturers. You're going to be tortured because you're not living. And I know so many Christians that are living torturous lives. They're miserable because they won't follow God. And I'm like, wouldn't it be easier just to serve the Lord with joy than go through all the misery you're going through? So I know that's, you know, if you've never heard that before, it's difficult to grasp. But I would just challenge you to go through the scriptures and, and understand that when God says somebody believes, take him, take him at his word, okay? <laughs> because there's people today, like in, in uh, Acts chapter 8, Simon Magus, it says Simon himself believed. And John MacArthur says Simon didn't believe. And I'm like, I'm going to go with God. Okay? I mean, I like MacArthur. He's a good teacher. But I'll, let me stick with God on this one. You know, because God said he believed. Now, see, Simon didn't do the things most Christians say you think you should do. But again, that all revolves around teaching. If you got a new Christian and they're never taught anything, they don't know anything. I got married to an unbeliever. I know. <laughs> I didn't know any better. Okay, I became a Christian. She wasn't a Christian. We got married. I hadn't got to 1 Corinthians yet in my reading, okay? I didn't even know that I was not supposed to marry a non-believer. I didn't know that. Thankfully, when I left for boot camp, I asked her, I said, will you promise me to read your Bible every day while I'm gone? And she did. And about halfway through boot camp, she wrote me a letter and said, I trusted Christ, and she became a Christian. And I was very excited. And it stuck. 50 years later, she's... <laughs> and listen, people, that's the only reason we have a happy marriage is because of Christ. We would have killed each other a long time ago. <laughs> I mean, just because we're both type A personalities, but, you know, God, it just, He's amazing. And He's amazing. He just, He's amazing. Does that answer that question for you? Yeah, it does. And just one more thing. Okay. And that would lead to the implication that there's probably going to be a whole bunch more people in heaven than the modern church gives credit for it. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. They're probably, but again, here's the key. A lot of people think they're Christians because they walked an aisle. They, saw, they prayed a prayer. The Bible never says, if you want to go to heaven, pray a prayer. That, that's not in the Bible. How you get to heaven? Believe on the Lord, Yeshua, the Christ, and thou shalt be saved. It's believing Christ. It's not the church made up so much nonsense, you know. They have to come to an aisle. They have to pray a prayer. They have to sign a card. That's not going to get you saved. 
You know, you have to join the church. You have to give. Those things, if someone is a believer, they hear the gospel, they believe the gospel. And again, I'm saying that because you cannot believe the gospel, 1 Corinthians 2.14, 1 John 5.1, unless you've been given life. Because the Bible teaches all men are dead in sin. And until we receive life from God, who chooses individuals and gives them life, that that bothers people a lot too. But hey, God's God, He can do what He wants, okay? So that's what the Scripture says. So He chooses, He gives life, those people respond by faith in Christ. And if you're a Christian, you're in union with God. That cannot ever be separated. can never be undone. That's the promise of Scripture, and that's a beautiful thing. So yeah, there are a lot of people who, if they don't, you know, they're not living up to the standard. I, I was in a Baptist church for years, and if you went to movies, you're a sinner. Didn't matter what movie you went to, but movies were evil. If you played cards, we played cards with a couple one time. We're playing spades, and you know they, oh yeah, we'll play. And we sat down, and the guy goes, "Which one's the spade? What? What? He never saw a card before, because he grew up in a legalistic, fundamental home, and playing cards was sinful." You know, (laughs) I laugh because the Bible's got enough things that says are sin. We don't need to make up more. Okay, we really don't need to add to it. Let's just stick with the ones the Bible says are wrong and go from there. All right. So someone who trusts Christ. And again, I think only they know that they've trusted Christ. Only God knows that they trusted Christ. But too often we become fruit inspectors and we're examined. Well, I don't think they're Christian because they're not doing this, this or that. Well, depends on when you look at their life. And, you know, if they're not living the life they should, they should be admonished by another Christian to start living it. Okay. Did that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, from Norm, David, how important is it that we include the sons of God and Babel along with Adam's sin in sharing the truth? Sick and tired of deistic moral therapy. So sick of the first century. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I don't know how, Norm, to answer that question, I don't know how much people need to understand that. I think they just need to understand they're sinners. You know, you cannot be saved unless you know you're a sinner. Okay? Why would you want to? But so that's the first step. You've got to understand your sin and then you, you trust Christ. So, you know, there's a lot of things that people aren't going to know, but basically... And and here's something that people don't understand. The Gospel of John is the only book in the Bible specifically written to bring people to Christ. Only Bible. And in the... Yeah, the only book. Thank you. And in that book, it tells you the way you become... You get eternal life is to believe the Gospel. You know, people say, well, you've got to repent of your sin. John forgot to mention that in that book. If repentance is necessary, and by repentance, most people say, well, you have to turn from your sin, then God will accept you. I can't clean up myself, okay? God's got to do that, but I've got to trust Him first, and then He cleans us up, all right? Again, we get, we get so many things backwards, and the reason we get so many things backwards, we're ignorant about the book. We don't spend time in it. If you read the book, you'll know these things. Uh, it's from Dana. Dana says, another wonderful message and worship service. Thank you to the whole Brian team. Thank you, Brian team. Every week on Friday and Saturday, I get excited for Sunday morning. Bless you all. Thanks, Dana. I appreciate that. that uh, that's encouraging. 
If persecution is an extension of His grace, does this pertain to the individual or body or both? Or should we be praying for the persecution of the church in America? Corey from Texas. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that I'd want to pray for persecution. Um, again, in this country, we don't, we don't have a clue, you know. But I'll tell you what, and that's one of the reasons here every Sunday we read about the persecuted church to remind us what we have here is not what most of the world deals with. People are dying, suffering and dying for their faith around the world now. It's not just the book of Acts. They're doing it now. And could persecution come here? I think it could. And my view on America has changed. I used to think that God needed to judge this country because we were so wicked. I'm not believing that anymore. I think the most of the people in this country are decent, caring, loving people. The problem is our government, our leadership. It is corrupt to the core. And the news media is corrupt to the core, so they make everybody think this is how everybody feels. No, it's not. Okay, it's not. I think there's a lot of decent people out there. Junior from Canada. Romans 11.29 says the gifts says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's true. Again, you know, people don't understand. Let me say this nicely. If you think you can lose your salvation, you don't understand what salvation is. Okay? Yeah, or how you got it. If you think you can lose it. Because you can't. You know, how would you lose it? Well, I didn't act right. Well, you know, and I was just, I like country music. You know, there's, there's the song, um, Working Hard to Get to Heaven, they sing. And I thought, you ain't going to get there. You ain't going to get there if you're working hard because it's not about work at all. It's about trusting someone else who did all the work, okay? It's all about Christ and what He has done for us. And that's, again, when we understand that, uh, we got David or Gary and Chris from PA. Hi, David. Happened with me. I remember the night I believed on Easter night at a small believing church. Believing church. I was so excited, and for a while I was on fire, and I fell away for about a year. I heard about the thief on the cross, and it brought me to tears, and I was back immediately. Never turned back. It's been 40 years. <laughs> Bless you, brother. I know a lot of people can share that testimony, and the sad thing is, you know, believers fall away and the church condemns them and kicks them instead of going after them and trying to encourage them and how can we help you what can we do for you you know we're supposed to be a body that cares about one another um i'm not sure who this is from area 661 it says i had a similar experience as you i think i was raised in the church baptized at six years old Got out of the service, kept looking for God, baptized again at 23 years old, fallen away, married a Catholic woman. We had three kids in private Catholic school. Uh, my kids were bringing religion work home. I started helping them with the wife, wanted to know, wanted to know how I knew this. I said I learned it as a child. Then a guy at work shares the gospel with me. I responded in faith. I woke up in a sweat. I cried to God, if you're real... Here I am at 38 years old. I started following Messiah Yeshua. You know, there's a thank you for that. There's a lot of people like that. You know, everybody's testimony is different. And we can't base our life or experience on somebody else's testimony. You know, I heard some lady in the testimony said, oh, I felt like someone was pouring warm honey all over my body. And I'm like, that's disgusting. You know, 
It's not about feelings, you know. It, that, that's what the church did. It's all about emotion. No, it's not how emotional you can get. It's do you believe? You know, and you believe with your mind. You know, do you believe that and trust that? And we have different experiences. You know, for me, I got saved. There was no turning back. Okay, my life took a drastic, drastic change the moment I trusted Christ. So I was just, I was on the road and going. Now, there was times I wasn't living like I should. And guess what? One time God got my attention, you know, because he had called me to preach. And I knew that from the moment I got saved, I knew that. But I was busy doing other things. And so God said, let me get your attention. And I became totally paralyzed from the neck down for a period of time. And laying in that bed, I'm like, okay, God, if you play like this, I'll do what you... Okay, I can't, I can't beat this. I can't argue with this. And again, once it happened, I knew what was going on. I knew it was chastening. And I got back, you know, as soon as I could walk again, got back to being busy about doing what God called me to do. Hello, brother Nick from Gilbert, Arizona. Michael Heiser always used the phrase believing loyalty, meaning as long as you believe salvation is guaranteed. As long, yes, and I strongly disagree with Heiser on, es, on, on eschatology, yes, but also on soteriology, okay? You know, Heiser made it all about you got to keep doing the right thing. Listen, my salvation is about what Christ did for me. It's not about what I do. It's about what He did. And I have faith only because He gave me life. That faith can grow or strengthen based on my time in the Word of God and my life experiences. But no. Can a believer stop believing? Yes, I think a believer can stop believing. Again, yes. In other words... Salvation is an act. Once that happens, you go through a period of life and some bad things happen. You're like, I'm just going to walk away. I'm, I'm not going to, I don't believe that anymore. I don't think that, I don't think God's, oh, lost another one. Scratch him off. No. No. And again, people, we'd all have to be living in fear. Because how do you know what you're going to do tomorrow? How do you know how you're going to respond to a situation? You don't know. That's why eternal security is based on the fact of what God did for us. Thank you for your teaching. You are blessed. I appreciate your sermons from Michael in Illinois. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate you joining us. Uh, Dana says again, if you're born and new from above and a new creation, the old things have passed away. How can we as men be res- how can we as men resurrected dead how can we as men resurrected dead a being I I'm not sure I I follow that there I don't know something's I'm not I'm not tracking on that right there All right I want to share something with you and then we'll wrap this up here I think we're done This is a verse that you know people need to grasp and hang on to, understand the significance of it. Let me back up. This is Romans 5.18. He says, So then, as through one trespass, it's referring to Adam, there is condemnation for everybody. Everybody's born dead in sin because of Adam. So also, through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life. That is by Christ. And verse 19 says this, 
For just as through one man's disobedience, again, Adam, the many were made sinners. People are sinners because of Adam. Then he says this, and this last part of 19 is something everybody needs to grasp and hang on to. So also, through the one man's obedience, referring to Christ, through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We are righteous through Christ's obedience. The only obedience that will get you into heaven is Christ. So if you get to heaven and you say, Hi, I've been a really good, I went to church, I did this, sorry. The only righteousness God accepts is Christ. So either you have Christ's righteousness or you don't. That's all there is. Okay? There's no, there's no other choices, okay? Good morning. Thank you for the great sermon. This is Laura from Georgia. I have some questions about Jews. If there are no real Jews in this day, then why are there still people who claim to be Jews? And are we called to love Jews? Them too, especially the people who are eugenists. Yes, I mean, I don't know that there's any exceptions to love now, but also we talked about, we did a message on imprecatory prayers a while ago, okay? There's people that are enemies of humanity, and I, I don't think it's wrong to pray imprecatory prayers. God smite these people, you know, and it's not a personal thing. It's not, you know, he did something to me, so I want God to kill him. No, it's God. This world doesn't need these evil people in it. Like the psalmist prayed, take them out, okay? And there's people who say they're Jews today. They're not ethnic Jews. It's a... It's a clique, a cult, whatever, okay? There's no ethnic Jews today, all right? And these people, for the most part, are evil, and they're bent on taking over the world, okay? And if you read some of the Jewish scriptures, they blaspheme Christ like crazy, okay? They hate Christ. And yet Christians think, oh, we got to be nice to these. No. Revelation 3.9. The synagogue of Satan. Revelation 2.9. Synagogue of Satan. They say they're Jews, but they're not. He says they're of the synagogue of Satan. That's how God looks at Jews. Since Christ showed up, proclaimed His Messiahship, if a Jew did not trust Him, they're done. They're no, they're no longer in the family of God. Once Christ showed up. So either they trust Christ or they're lost. And they're damned. Okay? Man, we're just going to keep going here. (laughs) In my experience, many come to Christ with an agenda. Well, that's true in some cases. That's why I don't like missionary dating. Okay? Because he's not a Christian, but I want to date him. Well, he might pretend to be one so he can, you know, get your attention. But so it's not a good idea. I think many of Yeshua's disciples were like that. I know that early on I was like that. He was like a genie in the bottle who came to me, my avenger angel. When I realized that I needed to seek first the kingdom, my agenda went away, shallow soil. Well, that's true. And again, it comes from understanding the scriptures, knowing who God is, understanding ourselves through the scriptures, and then we begin to you know, live the way we're called to live and honor God. All right, this has been been fun. Thanks for the questions. I appreciate it. Um, hopefully, we got them all answered. I didn't have any more at the time. So we're just going to close now. Um, I'll give the band a break. We're running late.
So I just want to thanks for tuning in with us live and you that are watching live. Thanks for the questions. I appreciate it. Um, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for, Lord, so much you've provided for us through the scriptures, Lord, that we can dig and, and study and know who you are. And Lord, I pray that that would be our desire to know you in an intimate way, to know you in such a way that it controls every thought we have, every action, every deed, that we would be imitators of you as we walk in love. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. All right, folks, have a great week. Thanks for coming. I appreciate you being here.